0: Holy Spirit, we invite you in and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understanding this idea of Easter. But God, the entire understanding of Easter is based upon one word, covenant. Jesus, you had the last meal with your disciples and in that meal you changed everything. And I pray we would understand deeper your sacrifice and a very ancient promise. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to welcome you this morning to UCC. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we want to say thank you so much for joining us. Um, And if you're here for the movie, it'll be on in about an hour or so. Uh, We'll get to that. We started off a series called Echoes of Easter. And we're looking at this as a way of looking at Easter as not just simply... See... One of the things I I, kind of get the sense of is that we look at Easter and we look at the Bible as this ancient document, as this this old uh, document, but has no relevance to us today. And I would say to you that Easter... Of all the events in the Bible, Easter is one of the most well-choreographed things that took place in the Bible that had thousands of years ahead of it to kind of set things up and to begin to have what God would want. So this morning we're looking at echoes of covenant, but let's recap where we were last week. Remember I said an echo, right? Two things are needed in an echo, the sound and the reflecting object. Right, the sound and the reflecting object. Last week we looked at the triumphal entry. Remember, this is Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is an ancient prophecy from the book of Zechariah. But what's really interesting about it is that for the first time, Jesus is publicly saying, "I am King." Remember, this is the beginning of the Passion Week. This is one week left before Jesus will be on upon the cross. As we looked at Jesus and his kingship, we looked at the promised king, we looked at the problem king, and we looked at the personal king, and all this is seen in Jesus. Every week we say we're going to look at this idea of the sound and the reflection, right? We're going to take a look at an event of the Easter story, and we're going to say, this is what happened back then, but what is the reflection for us today? Remember we said last week that this sound is the proclamation of Jesus the king unveiled and revealed in the triumphal entry. That's the sound, right? But now, what's the reflection? The reflection is in the book of Revelations, because as Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem as king, the Bible tells us very clearly he's returning as king. Look at how uh, John's apocalypse, John's uh, revelation tells us about this, right? I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose riders call faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. Riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. This is the triumphal Jesus. Jesus, while amongst us, was the suffering servant, was the humble servant. But the book of Revelation tells us very clearly that this same Jesus will return to us in a different way. Now, understanding as well that John's... Uh, John is, is trying to describe a scene, and he's using what we call apocalyptic language. That means he's, using, he's painting a picture with broad brush strokes. So obviously, Jesus is not going to come with a sword sticking out of his mouth, but what he's trying to say, he's trying to convey to us the essence of what this image that he's captured. He's trying to, he's trying to use the best words so he can figure out how to tell us what Jesus is going to do. So that's what we looked at last week, and today uh, we're going to continue on, and we're going to look at this idea of the Last Supper. Remember, Jesus, uh, this is the Passover meal that Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's, and he's uh, having this last meal together. Now look uh, in Luke's gospel, what it says. In Luke chapter 22, verses 19 to 21, it says this, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, let's just stop right there. One of the things uh, we have to understand is the Bible is written in a particular context, and the context is Jewish culture, okay? So when Jesus is sitting there and he's speaking to his disciples, he uses a word. The word is new covenant. Now, remember, Every time we have communion, you would have heard the first Corinthians passage read, and you would have heard these words. But because we are Gentiles, I'm making that assumption. Maybe some of you are from a Jewish background and you understand. But for the most of us, we're Gentiles. Jesus uses this phrase, new covenant. Everybody at that table is sitting there going, what do you mean, Jesus? What exactly are you saying here? Because the Jewish people knew the old covenants. They were living under the old covenant. But Jesus, at that moment in time, says this word, he uses is new covenant. Now, let me say something to you this afternoon. At the core of the Easter story is the word covenant. What's interesting is, is that this word covenant is not a word that we use today. It's a very ancient word. and has, I have a, a, It's a hard uh, for me to kind of explain a modern um, context of it, but it's still a very important word. And I'd also say, too, at the center of Christianity is the word covenant? This morning at our time for our volunteers, I asked who had heard a sermon about covenants and about five of the 20, maybe 30 plus people there had said they had heard a sermon about covenant. Did you know that this word is so important that at the core of everything that God was trying to explain to us is this word covenant? Now, let me try to give you a description, a, a definition of covenant. A covenant is a contract or agreement between two or more parties. Covenant is how God has chosen to communicate to us, to redeem us, and to guarantee us eternal life in Jesus. These truths revealed in the Bible are the basis of Christianity. The Bible is a covenant document. The Old and New Testaments are really Old and New Covenants. The word testament is Latin for covenant. Every time you say Old Testament... Yank testament out and say covenant. It's the old covenant. And we look at the new testament, yank testament out and say new covenant. We don't realize it, but every time that we are describing pieces of the Bible, what we are actually saying is this is the reflection of the covenantal nature of God. Covenant is a very ancient word, it's a very ancient ritual, and we don't quite understand uh, all the implications of it, but in the Bible it lays it up pretty clearly. And everything about Easter revolves around covenant. And I'd also say to you as well, that unless you understand covenant, you will not understand the Bible. Now, the reason I say that is oftentimes we'll look at the Old Testament and we'll see the Bible and we'll see the, uh, this, this, this part of God's nature that kind of repels us, right? We live in a culture where, you know, we are so sanitized, so clean that anything about the, ancient, the Old Testament, it, it kind of re- repulses us. We're like, wow, God, you seem really angry. You seem really bloodthirsty. And the reason we can say that is because we don't understand covenant. Then we go to the New Testament, the new covenant, and we see Jesus, and we see this, this, this unfolding nature of God, and then we say, oh, this is, I like this more. This seems a little more easy for me to, to wrap my head around, but the problem is, if you don't understand covenant, what Jesus did upon the cross will make no sense to you. And I will also say this, if you don't quite understand covenant, how God reveals himself in the Old Testament it will make no sense to you as well. So let's take a look here the book of Deuteronomy, I remember, the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Pentateuch, the law the Torah. It's a, it's a book of sermons, right? Now, let me give you context. God has just told Moses that he's through the promised land, right? He's not, he's not going to partake of this promise made to the people. So the book of Deuteronomy is a book of sermons. Now, imagine you tell a pastor, you tell a preacher, you've got, you've got one week, you've got, you've got a very little time to say your sermons, go ahead. The book of Deuteronomy is one big long sermon. That's all it is, right? And so Moses is sitting there with the people, and he's reminding them of all that has passed before they enter into the future. And towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses stops at a particular place, and he he gives some mention of the the covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses says this. Now, look, he's he's addressing the entire nation of Israel before him, those who are left alive before they enter into the promised land. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. In the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, there are a series of different kinds of covenants. For example, there's a covenant with Noah. Don't see the movie. You won't see it. It's a waste of time. But in the the story of Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, God makes a covenant with Noah. And the covenant goes like this. Noah, from now on, I'm going to restrain my anger towards the earth. And I will no longer use a flood to wipe everyone away. I make this covenant with you today. The application of that covenant is basically God saying, never again will he destroy the earth in that way. There is what we call the Davidic covenant. Uh, God made a covenant with David. And the covenant looks like this. He says to David, David, your throne will endure for all eternity. And what he's saying to him is, David, from you is going to come the Messiah. And his throne, who is Jesus, that will go on for eternity. So there are a series of covenants in the Old Testament, right? But Moses is referring to a specific covenant here. And we're going to look at it in a few moments here. But he's saying to them, listen, before you enter the promised land, remember the covenant that God made with you. Because that covenant is going to go with you. That covenant is going to transcend what's going to happen to you in the future. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 15 because we're going to take a look at uh, the covenant and we're going to take a look at all that it says uh, about it. What you need to understand about a covenant as described to us by Moses is the first thing is a covenant is personal. Now look at the language that Moses uses when he's talking about the covenant to confirm you this day as his people that you may be that he may be your God and he, as he promised you. The pronouns are all personal. It's relational, right? Whatever a covenant is, it has a personal relational perspective to it. See, all of our understanding of relationships today revolve around the individual. And you know what that looks like, right? You have to make me happy. And if you make me happy, then perhaps maybe I'll make you happy. Or, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm in it for myself here. And if I'm not getting what I want from this relationship, I'm out of here, Right? And, uh, you know, by the way, don't ever use that as a breakup line to somebody. But you, you get the idea, right? What the, whatever covenant is, it is relational. In a covenant, each party it says to the other that they will put the other person first. And, of course, as I'm using this language about covenant, many of you are thinking about marriage, right? Because that is really one of the only equivalents we have of the ancient covenant ritual, that is as close as we can get to understanding what a covenant is. So the first thing when Moses was trying to remind the people is that God is going to be in covenant with them, but that covenant is personal. The next thing you need to know about covenant, it is legal. Now, look at, again, look at the language. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath. The language is very legal. You ever read through the Old Testament, and there's certain language that emerges where it's almost like you're reading a a uh, legal document, right? God is laying out things uh, uh, about his nature, his relationship with us, and they seem to be in terms of, of, of law. And you look at that, you're like... I thought God wants to be in relationship with me. I thought, you know, God's my buddy, my friend, and all that. That is true, but there's also a nature of God's character, which is law, which is legal. That's why sometimes God says, I call the heavens and the earth as witness against you. Imagine a cosmic courtroom where God is the judge, and he calls, you know, the heavens and the earth and saying, you know, tell us how humanity has broken the covenant with me. There is a language of legality about covenant. So a covenant is both, uh, is both uh, legal and personal. Look at this here. Um, most agreements we have today are legal, but none are personal as well. That is what places covenant in a unique place and why we don't have modern equivalents. If you've ever bought a house or a car or entered into a cell phone contract, that is a business arrangement. And we know it's a business arrangement because if you find a better deal... You'll leave that provider and find someone else. You'll go to whoever offers you the better deal. Why? It's not a covenantal relationship. It's just simply a, a business transaction, right? The old phrase: it's, it's 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 business, not personal, right? Well, a covenant is business and personal. It is in in a, in a, in a um, when you sign a co- cell phone contract, you don't ask the person to come to your home and have dinner with you and and then, you know ever and have Christmas and Easter, like, you don't do that. Unless you're weird, then maybe you might, but you don't do that. Why? It's a business transaction, right? Once you've signed and gotten your hardware and your phone, the person who's sold it to you has forgotten you and has moved on. Rightfully so. It's a business contract, not a covenant, right? So whatever a covenant is, it is personal, it is legal. But the other thing you need to understand, it is also conditional, right? Because look what Moses says, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. Now, let me just stop there. Whenever you hear this idea of covenant, there's, there's a phrase that goes with it, blessings and curses, right? Now, what's interesting about that is what the, what, what, what's happening in the covenant is, is if you follow the covenant, this is the blessings that will be given to you. If you break the covenant, these are the curses that will be given to you. So a covenant is personal, it is legal, but it is also Conditional. That, that if, you, uh, if, you, if, you don't, if you don't understand it that way, you'll miss out on it. Now, let's take a look at the ceremony. Again, Genesis chapter 15, this is a very interesting moment in time, right? Again, this is at the very beginning of the Bible, right? The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, right? We've already seen the covenant of, with Noah in Genesis chapter 6. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, God has a different covenant here. And the reason we're going to look at this covenant, because I will say to you this morning, this afternoon, that this covenant actually applies to you sitting here. But Let's kind of walk through it and give some context here. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, let me set the scene for you, right? God has just said to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation from you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give this to you. I'm, I'm going to do all these things through. Now look at Abraham's response. After, the, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, imagine this, right? Abraham has worked his entire life to create this legacy, to create this um, fortune, to create everything, right? But he knows that when he dies, a stranger is going to get everything. His legacy stops there. So all the promises that God is giving him are, don't really mean that much to him. Why? Because it's, it's going to leave him. It, he's, he's an old man, and it's, when he passes away, it's going to be given to somebody else. His legacy is going to stop right there, okay? So this is what's happening here. Now, just a quick note here. As you're reading that, you're looking at the word Abram, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought his name was Abraham. Just as a side note here, in the covenant relationship, what takes place when two people enter into the covenant, they change names. So this is the last time you will see the word Abram in the Bible, and, and Abram's wife Sarai, right? Because after this moment in time, what happens is Abram's name becomes Abraham, and Sarah's name becomes Serha. Now, I'm not clearing my throat here for the people in the first couple of rolls, like, that's kind of gross. Can't you do that later on. What's happening is, remember, in the Old Testament, the name God identified himself to his people is Yahweh, right? The ha huh sound. So when Abram and Sarah enter into covenant, they become Abraham, taking a piece of God's name, and Sarah becomes Serha. She becomes a part of the covenant, right? In a covenant relationship, the names are switched. That's, again, in a marriage relationship, right? A name is taken to show a covenant relationship has started. This is the last time in the Bible that you will see Abram and Sarai. After this moment, from Genesis 16 onwards now, they will always be referred to as Abraham and Sarah because they are now in covenant with God. Okay, so that's just kind of a... That's free, by the way. Um, And, you know, you can take that with... I can imagine someone sitting there, we're paying for this? Um, just by being nice. Okay, so let, let's look at what verse 8 and 9 says now. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, the previous verses, God is, is mapping out to Abram. Abram, don't you get it? I'm going to give you a nation that looks like the stars in the sky. And, and, and what I'm going to do through you is going to be for all people. And Abram's like, I don't see it. I don't know how much longer I got to live, Lord, but I'm old. I got no heirs. Right? Like I, I don't see it. So look, look at this then. In verse 8, God says, listen, Abram, I'm going to do something here. And he asks Abram to grab these animals. Now, what's interesting here is Abram understands what's about to happen. We the Gentile readers, we who don't understand the context, the culture of what's happening here, look at this going, oh, okay, so, you know, God's creating a petting zoo. No, actually, he's not. He's about to enter into a covenant with Abram, and Abram knows this. So this is why Disney doesn't play well in the Old Testament, because what's about to happen to these animals? You know, this is, this is kind of Bambi, you know, times five, right? Like, like you know, yeah, yeah. if you haven't seen Bambi, spoiler alert. Um, now, look what happens here, right? <laughs> what happened to Bambi? The uh, He's fine. Um, In verse 10 and 11, it says this. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down to the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, I want you to visualize this for a second, okay? God said to Abram, bring me these animals. Abram brings the animals, and he cuts them in half. Now, in a covenant ceremony, what takes place then is both halves are placed on either side. And what happens is you're placed a pathway between carcasses. And we were told, one commentator mentioned, that when these two halves are lying there, what, the blood drips into the middle. And so there's a pathway of blood that is made from these animal halves. This is a covenant ceremony. God is making a covenant with Abram. And Abram knows exactly what's happening here. But something happens that Abram could never have, uh, have thought of. In verses 17 and 18, look what happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, let me show you something. In covenant relationships, there are always usually greater or lesser uh, parties. For example, a king can make a covenant relationship with, with a servant. But guess who doesn't walk through the animal halves? The king. In a covenant relationship, it's always the lesser party that walks through the, uh, the pieces of uh, flesh. Why? Because what's happening here, as a person is walking through these pieces of meat, they're seeing on either side of them death, right? And what they're being told in a very visual way is, if you break the covenant, then what's happened to these animals is going to happen to you as well. So Abram has set up this covenant relationship. He set up this covenant ceremony. And a darkness descends... And remember, we're seeing a image, a metaphor for who God is. Remember, humanity cannot see God in its truest nature because that would destroy us. So whenever humanity encounters God in the Old Testament, there's, there's different metaphors. They use different images. Why? Because we can't see God. In this particular instance, God chose to use our fireplace with a blazing torch. And there's a, there's a reason behind it. Just, just know that it's, it's, it's a way of God trying to reveal himself to Abram. But now here's what happens. Abraham, Abram is shocked. Why? God never asks him to walk down the pathway of blood. Abram is obviously the lesser. Whenever you make a covenant with God, you are the lesser in that relationship. But God never says, Abram, walk the path of blood. Instead, Abram f- sees God walk through the path of blood. And that is when he was told that the covenant is, f- is finished. Abram is never asked to walk through the pathway of blood. Now, let me show you why this is so incredible. Let me give you the implications. Now, what you need to understand but the reason we're looking at the covenant of Abram is because we are all descendants, spiritual descendants of Abram. Now, for some of you who grew up in Sunday school, there's a song going through your head. Father Abram. And many husbands, and many husbands, had Father Abraham. This is why I'm on the worship team, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Spirit figures, here we go. Okay, so the implications are that whatever this covenant with Abram is, God says it applies to us. Now look at something here. Look how in the New Testament, the New Covenant this, this, this covenant of Abraham is taught. Look at the middle scripture there. Um, uh, we'll talk about the other ones in a second but. Matthew chapter one verse one. In Matthew one verse one. remember Matthew's gospel. remember, each gospel, the four gospels, are for a reason. Matthew's gospel, the reason he starts off with the genealogy is Matthew's gospel is written to the Hebrews, to the Jews. And Matthew is introducing them to the Messiah. and look how he used to them. He references two covenants, two covenants that apply to the Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, right? The Davidic covenant, the Messiah must come from David. But look at the second part, the son of Abraham. Matthew is doing something very purposeful here. He's connecting Jesus to David. He's the oncoming king, but he's also connecting him to Abraham. In Luke chapter 13, this is an incredible moment that we miss this is a woman who has been um, oppressed by a demon for many, many years, right? But then look at Jesus sees her. But look how he refers to her. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, now understand something? In covenant ceremonies, women did not participate. It's a patriarchal culture in the Old Testament. Whether you like that or not, that's that's the reality. That's the way it was. Women were never um, they were never in a covenant uh, covenant ceremony. Now it's interesting is the covenant blessing of the ceremony would always be to the men. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to tweet that. God is sexist or whatever. Okay, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow your roll. Okay, because what happens here is when Jesus refers to this woman, he says to her, she's a daughter of Abraham. He is saying that the covenant relationship with Abraham is extended to her, that she doesn't need a man in her life for the blessings from the covenant of Abraham, that she herself is the heir to the covenant of Abraham. Now look uh, a little bit further in Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity, he being Jesus, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who are all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he blesses, but Abraham's descendants. The reason we look to the Abraham covenant is because the Abrahamic covenant is the only covenant that applies to you. You are not part of the Davidic covenant. You are not part of the Noah covenant, although in, in, you know, in general terms, sure. But the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant that applies to you. Now, you can go, yay, we're part of the Abrahamic covenant. But let me show you something here. Because if you're part of the Abrahamic covenant, let me talk, talk to you about punishments. Remember I said to you, covenant has blessings and curses? If you're under the Abrahamic covenant, now let's take a look at what the curses are. In verses 18 and 20 of Deuteronomy 29, this is what it says. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke a blessing on themselves thinking, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way, they will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. Now look at this. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in the book of will fall on them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. This is the curses of the, uh, of the Abrahamic covenant. Now look what he's saying there. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. If you break covenant with God, The Bible says, the Lord will never forgive you. And some of you are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought I could ask for forgiveness for my sins. How is it God can say this? How is it God can look at this? But then I feel this. The reason you can look at this phrase here and say, I don't understand how this can be applicable to me. I don't understand how God can say this. Because I'm not perfect. I confess to you. I say, me, I... I've broken covenant with God multiple times in the last five minutes. How is it that God, I can ask God to forgive me if his word clearly says, the Lord will never be willing to forgive them? What are we missing here? Right? What are we missing here? What we're missing here is what happened in the covenant ceremony. Remember, the covenant ceremony, a darkness falls And God walks through the flesh. You know, darkness fell again. And the darkness fell again when Jesus was on the cross. In Mark chapter 15, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Let me show you something here. The darkness is the darkness of judgment. God walks the path of blood between two animals. And by God walking through the two animals, he's saying that whatever happens in this covenant... The curses for disobedience will apply to me. This is why God never asks Abram to walk the path of blood. Because if Abram walked the path of blood, he'd be destroyed the next day. Instead, God says, Abram, whatever you do wrong, whatever sins that you do, I will bear the punishment. The reason Jesus had to come in the incarnation at Christmas time is because the punishment for the covenant breaking had to be made in the flesh. Now watch this. God says, as he's walking through the animal halves, Abram, you get all the blessings. I will take the curse. And the reason God can say what he says about breaking of the curse is that God is saying, Abram, you will break covenant with me. He's saying today, Descendants of Abraham, in this room, you've broken covenant with me. But because of the covenant I made with Abraham, I bear the curse, not you. Abraham, you get all the blessings, but I myself take the curses. The reason for Easter is because of the covenant God made with himself. God bore the curses while giving us the blessings. And this is what we have to understand, is that we break covenant with God every day. I do. I know I do. And I feel it. And sometimes you walk around feeling the shame and the guilt of, the, of, of that breaking of covenant. And you walk around and you say, how can God love me? And my response to you is the only reason you say that is because you don't understand covenant. The reason God loves you is because he bore the punishment for your oath-breaking, for your breaking of the covenant. He walked through the animal half saying, I will bear the punishment if you break covenant. See, Easter is the bridge between law and love. When you look through the Old Testament and you see how angry God is with sin, and please understand something. The reason God is angry with sin is because God is a righteous judge. If we had a judge today that we found was corrupt, that judge would be fired. If they are impartial in any way in a court case, that judge is fired, and they become subject to the law. And if a human judge is held to that accountability, how much more so would God be, uh, how much more is God being held to uh, a higher standard? See, when you look at sin, what you need to understand is God's not okay with it. God is not okay with the raping of people, of nations. God is not okay with abuse. God is not okay with the poor being beaten and impoverished and being taken advantage of by the powerful. God is not okay with sin. He is a righteous judge. But in the courtroom, the cosmic courtroom, when God brings all this evidence against us, Jesus stands up and says, I will take the punishment. We stand in the, in the, in the, the, in the accuser's box, and God goes through and names all of our sins, and we sit there and we shrink and we get heavy, and we're like, "Lord, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry." And then our lawyer, Jesus, stands up and says, "Father, for their sins, I will take the punishment. For their sins, I will take the punishment because of the covenant you made with them." Look at the sound of the reflection here, because Paul ties this together in Galatians chapter 3. Now watch this. We're going to stop it a couple times. This is, this is beautiful. Watch what he does here. For all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. As it is written, "Curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. Stop. Do you do everything written in the book of law? I don't. So we are under a curse because we do not live up to the covenant standards God set up with us. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does not do these things, who who does these things, will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in an order that the blessings given to who? To Abraham. To Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Who's that? Us. Through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. We break covenant with God. We break relationship with God. But the problem is we walk around and we think to ourselves, we are cursed. We're cursed. We're sinful. We're broken. And that is correct. But how do you bridge law, God's righteousness, with his love? With Easter. That Jesus died upon the cross because of the covenant God made with himself to Abram. And that every time you think to yourself, I am cursed, I am cursed, you need to remind yourself, wait a minute. God cursed himself. God bore the punishment of my sin. And I get the blessings from him. Now... As I just had a couple conversations with people in the first service, that doesn't mean we have a license to sin. Oh yay, I have the blessings of God. He gets the curses. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. Because that means you break covenant with God completely. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 there's now there's now therefore no condemnation for those under the law? No, Christ Jesus. What is Easter? Easter is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus Himself says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The fulfilling of the law is a covenant God made with Abram in Genesis chapter 15. God himself walked through that path of blood and said, Abram, today I make a covenant with you. But the consequences of you breaking that covenant, I will bear. I will bear. Your past, your sin, your brokenness, whatever it is, your addictions. You do not bear the curses of that Jesus did on the cross. And if we forget covenant, if we forget that, then the gospel makes no sense to us. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant has no bridging point. But if we understand that Jesus bore our curses upon the cross, that Jesus fulfilled the law by dying on the cross because the covenant God made with Abram, Then we understand the gospel, the good news. And the good news is this you do not get the penalty for your own sin. God does. The good news is you do not have to walk around with shame and guilt all over your heart. You know why? Because Jesus hung on the cross for our sins. Let's pray. As every head is bowed, every eyes closed, I just want you to take a moment just to meditate. Just to think. Some of you walk around with guilt and shame and you don't know what to do with it. Things you've done, things you've said, things done to you, you just you walk around and it's like a, a darkness in your soul. But I want you to know something. The reason you don't know what to do with it is because you don't understand covenant. And the reason you don't understand covenant is you don't understand Easter. And I would say to you, you're listening to the wrong person, the accuser who is the devil. Paul tells us, take up your cross daily. I break covenant with God, but I ask for forgiveness. I go back to God saying, Lord, forgive me, forgive me. That's what covenant is. When you became a Christ follower, whenever that moment in time that you decided to say, my focus will be on Jesus, not in perfection, but in the attempt you became under Christ. There's now no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You partook of the blessings of the covenant. While Jesus himself absorbed the curses of the covenant. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Your sins were paid. God himself knew we could not pay that price. He himself paid it. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for each person in this room this afternoon. Holy Spirit, I pray if anyone here is under the curse, who feel cursed because of their past, because of things they've done, Lord, I pray that they would know that they are loved by you, that you bore the curses of their sin and we get the blessings. God, it doesn't make sense to us and it doesn't even seem fair to us. But God, I thank you that you are our covenant God, that the covenant you made with Abram thousands of years ago the fulfillment of that covenant on the cross thousands of years ago applies to me today and to all of us. Lord, I pray we would not walk around condemned, but instead we would every day try, try, try to live under the covenant standard. But God, thank you that when we fall, when we fail, when we stumble, you bear the curses, not us. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would speak to the hearts and minds of each person here and you would lift the curse from their shoulders and place it upon the cross where it rightfully belongs. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you do not abandon us. I pray you'd send us with your blessing this afternoon in Jesus' name, amen.